With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone. I'm Hilary Kerr, the co-founder and chief content officer of Who, What, Where, and this is Second Life, a podcast spotlighting women who have truly inspiring careers. We're talking about their work journeys, what they've learned from the process of setting aside their doubts or fears, and what happens when they embark on their second life. This week, as we are all self-quarantining around the world, we're bringing you another new episode, which we were lucky enough to record back in February. We've been hearing from a lot of you who are listening to the pod as part of your new normal routine, as a lighthearted distraction or a source of inspiration. And I just want to say, as always, thank you for your incredible support. We will continue to bring you new interviews in the coming months in whatever capacity we are able while remaining socially distant and remote. Today's interview is with Shelley Gibbs Sanders, the founder and creative director of the direct-to-consumer jewelry brand, The Last Line. Shelley created The Last Line to provide consumers with what they had long been searching for in the jewelry market. The last perfect tennis bracelet, the last perfect drop earring, or the last perfect pinky ring. You get the idea. With a selection of both timeless and on-trend pieces in the finest materials, in just two and a half years, the brand has sold over 100,000 pieces of fine jewelry and 500,000 diamonds. But prior to founding her own company, Shelley worked much more behind the scenes as the head jewelry designer for dozens of high-end houses and celebrity brands, including House of Harlow 1960 with Nicole Richie, the Rachel Zoe Collection, and a jewelry line for ALC with Andrea Lieberman. Shelley's career story is fascinating with plenty of hidden gems along the way. Now on Second Life, it's Shelley Gibbs Sanders. So we like to start at the beginning for this podcast. So what did you study in school and what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? So I always wanted to make jewelry when I was younger, but then somewhere along junior high school, completely derailed, of course. (laughs) Well, junior high is tough. (laughs) So I forgot about that part. I went to school at Parsons for fine art. What does that mean exactly? So I actually dropped out halfway through. Um, It wasn't for me, but I studied painting, drawing, conceptual arts, just all visual arts. So like if it's art, you did it basically. Basically. So it it was out of the four-year program I did the first two years. So I never got to my focus. Got it. Because when I realized it was time to choose a focus, I was also realizing this wasn't where I wanted to be. Got it. Okay. So what did you do then when you're like, okay, this isn't the right path for me? Also, by the way, I think that's pretty brave to be two years invested in something and just acknowledge like it's not right. I was just going by my feeling at the time and I didn't feel brave. I actually felt really bad about it. Um, I was pretty embarrassed that I was like dropping out of college. Mm -hmm. But I 
didn't want to be there anymore. I knew that I wanted to make jewelry. And somehow I knew that in order to make jewelry the way that I wanted to, I needed to train at the bench. What is that? So the bench is where you make fine jewelry by hand. Got it. Okay. So trained jewelers are called bench jewelers. And I knew that if I wanted to be able to make something from nothing, that I needed to understand exactly how it was made before I could make something else. So we're talking about like everything from making a mold to like melting down metals? Exactly. Yeah. All of that? All of it. Oh, wow. Yes. And filing and everything. So So super technical. Very. And I always loved the engineering and putting things together. So I think it was sort of a natural fit for me to want to attack jewelry design from the technical perspective. Mm -hmm. And so there weren't very many schools that offered that program. Um, It's sort of a dying trade. So I found a trade school in San Francisco, and I moved to San Francisco, and I trained there for two years. Okay, so tell me about that because I know nothing about that world, and that sounds fascinating. So you show up on your first day, and what happens? Is it like gold smithing 101? Yes, exactly. (laughs) So I took an intensive program, and I learned everything from, you know, zero to goldsmith. Okay. (laughs) And there was no design involved. So this was just learning the skills. There was a wide variety of people in the class and all coming for different reasons. Some who wanted to make their own jewelry, you know, at home, some who wanted to work in a shop and this was the career that they wanted as a bench jeweler. And then some people like myself who wanted to start jewelry lines. That's incredible. So what was the hardest part of school and what what came really easily to you? So the easy part for me was design. The difficult part of school was doing things perfectly. So metal and stones are really unforgiving. And so filing in a straight line and sawing in a straight line and soldering together without melting it or going too far, it's a skill that can be learned, but it's a difficult one. So for me, I struggled with where I wanted it to be and where my skills were. And there was a good time period where those were very far apart. So what are you doing when you're learning? Like you're not, they don't hand you an emerald and say, have at it. What sort of materials were you practicing on? And and how long were you training before you started working with fun stuff, we should say? So we worked in brass, silver, and gold. Mm-hmm. And we jumped into gold fairly quickly. And I got into in the school, this niche 22 karat granulation. What is that? It's an ancient form of jewelry design that's done in a kiln with tiny little granules of gold. And for a while, I thought that that's how I was going to do my line. But that took me probably about a year and a half to get to doing that. And so for about a year and a half, I struggled with burns, cuts, You know, I imagine it's similar to what someone goes through when they're going to cooking school, grabbing. Oh, God, I didn't even think about that piece of it. Oh, yeah. Okay, so was there a moment in your 
technical studies where you all of a sudden everything just clicked and you felt like, okay, this is the path forward? Or were you nervous at any point that it wasn't sticking? During the school, in the middle of it, I was I felt very confident towards the end when it was time to move on and to d- apply jewelry in some way to my life. I felt nervous. <laughs> <laughs> so I was just turning 21 at this time. And I rented a small studio in the building where we went to school and I was going to create my own collection and sell it. I had no plan, zero business skills whatsoever. And I luckily, very luckily, a friend from high school, his parents owned a jewelry licensing company. This was a gift. And he called me and he was like, do you want to come design for my dad? And I was like, yes, I do. I didn't have any money. I didn't have a job. And so when I was offered this opportunity, I moved to Los Angeles probably a week later. Wow. Okay. So you said it's a jewelry licensing company. So for our audience who might not know what that means, can you explain a little bit about it? So... They had a fine jewelry company for years and years and years. And, you know, as the business changed, they got into licensing, which was initially for this company, they had the license to brands like Playboy and Rockaware and Disney. And larger companies will outsource their jewelry designing and manufacturing and production and, you know, even shipping and sales to other companies that specialize. And so this was a company that specialized in all of the above. Okay, so if Playboy wants to have, you know, a gold bunny line of necklaces, they know that as a publisher, they're not going to be able to create all of that. So they team up the same as a licensing deal in fashion. There's a team that actually produces it and manufactures it and all of that. Exactly. So what was that first job like? So you're so young. I was very young. You and have you have school under your belt, but not a lot of technical experience and zero life experience, right? Basically, of any kind. I actually, at that time, still didn't know how to draw jewelry properly. So I, I didn't really know that I didn't know that at that time. Um, I took a couple technical rendering classes in school, and I could always draw well figure drawing, but the way that you do technical jewelry renderings is very different. Is that through a computer or is it hand drawn or both? So it's either. (laughs) I do it through, I do it by hand. Mm -hmm. My drawings, when I think back to my first weeks at the company, I would draw, you know, a ring that was probably an, you know, an inch long on the finger. I would probably draw it like eight inches on a piece of paper. (laughs) And I knew enough about jewelry to be able to convey the ideas to the manufacturers and to the jewelers and to to, to get it made. But I had a lot of samples coming back, terrible. (laughs) Things were were always off. And I could lean on my technical abilities to fix them because I understood how to make things and what type of hinges to use and settings and all of that. But it was a struggle because... The job that I had was essentially, it was a designer, but it was a product development head. So what that means is that I wasn't just 
making a design and then giving it to somebody who was going to then communicate it to the factory. My job was to design it, draw it, communicate it to the factory, and in this case, sometimes overseas factories where there were language barriers as well, to oversee the sampling of the piece and everything from the beginning of an idea to an approved sample, which is a lot more than I learned in school for bench jeweler. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Right. Oh, my goodness. So how did you get up to speed with your skill set and how long did that take? And what were some of the harder lessons you learned along the way? So luckily, I enjoyed it a lot and I was very determined. I, I had a, some rough times just with like my own self prior to to starting the to starting my jewelry design process and going to school and everything and so i had a fierce focus and desire to make this work mm-hmm. and i knew that i needed to eat up every single aspect of jewelry and i saw this as this was my path Did you have mentors? Like, were there other people to help teach you or to ask questions of? Or was it a lot of, like, figuring it out on your own and trial and error? Both. Um, In this first job, they had a manufacturing facility on the second floor of the office. And a lot of the people in the factory, in this factory, happened to be Russian. And there are a lot of men in their 60s. And it was my, I loved it up there. <laughs> I love. And I... You wanted to go hang out with the technical people. And I people. did. And I learned there were probably four or five of, of them who taught me a lot. I learned at that job how to essentially produce a drawing line. And see it all the way through from yes. concept to actual product. Yeah. What piece of that did you love and what part of it was hard for you? So I loved designing for multiple brands. I loved being able to put on different hats. I was going to say, how does that work? So like when you, when someone comes to you and says like, hey, you know, the TK brand wants you to design the jewelry line. Does it have to be something that's your aesthetic or do you like it when it's not your aesthetic? I like it when it's not. Um, I found that the most satisfying moments for me as a designer were working with a brand that was an unlikely, you know, pairing from my personal style and figuring out how to, you know, get in that creative director or that brand, get into their vibe and turn it into something that I would love and that I would think that other people would love in their voice. And Interesting. So, yeah. so you would want to take it to, like, I want to respect the voice, but still make it something that I would like. Yes. That has got to be tricky. So it was everything from fine jewelry to costume, right? Yes. Um, what are the challenges and benefits of, of the different types of jewelry? I enjoyed costume a lot because I got to play with materials that were not typically used in jewelry. So we would play with fabrics And that was interesting because I could kind of indulge my fashion love a little bit and bring it into the jewelry. I loved enamels. I loved plastics and lucites. All of those materials were really interesting in costume. Costume's challenging because you're essentially working a lot of times with materials that aren't necessarily naturally beautiful. Mm -hmm. 
I always tried to either make it look really over the top costume or to try to figure out a way to make the costume look fine. I, I loved doing that, but also I got frustrated often because the stones only come in this size and then they are glued in so the prongs don't look right. So there were a lot of technical challenges. Got it. Okay. So Nicole Ritchie was on this podcast and she talked about how you designed her House of Harlow jewelry line. And she's like, well, you know, my friend is a technical jeweler and Mm -hmm. I had never heard that before. I was like, oh my God, that's such a cool name. So tell me about that process and how you guys work together. Creating the first collection of House of Harlow with her is one of the moments in my career that I'm the most proud of. I put a lot with her into that first collection to try to create something. And I think it was my biggest lesson because we started that collection and then developed like a language for the brand. And so that's where I got sort of the taste of branding, which I is another one of my favorite things. Helpful when you're doing your own thing. Yes, <laughs> exactly. She believed in me numerous times throughout my career and she was like I want to work with you and gave me like a chance Mm -hmm. and and that it was so successful yeah it was really really cool um and then let's talk about Victoria's Secret okay (laughs) so you've also designed a few of the million dollar fantasy bras which by the way I fully have seen at various like events that I've covered on that side of things I had no idea you were responsible what is that process like tell me everything about it I'm so interested (laughs) okay so that was when I was working for the second jewelry company and they were a company called Mawad and basically Victoria's Secret will partner with the jewelry company or manufacturer and they would have people make these outrageous bras and with like diamonds out of diamonds rubies and all sorts of fine gemstones that was a lot of fun they hired a creative director who directed their show and we worked with her and she would give us sort of a a vibe of what she liked for the outfit. And then I got to interpret it with the team into diamonds and rubies and emeralds. That's insane. You also worked with Rachel Zoe. You also worked with Disney. Is there a particular collaboration or partnership that you feel most proud of or that you learned the most from? So I'm very proud of the House of Harlow collection. And I worked early on with, when you asked me earlier about a mentor, I worked very early on with Andrea Lieberman on a fine jewelry collection. Who has been on this podcast and is the most wonderful human. Most wonderful. I learned a lot from working with her. And this was when she was in the thick of her styling career. And she was, I mean, one of the if not the most amazing stylists around. And so I would sit there and, you know, she was like a little bit older than me, but she was like really cool. And I was just mesmerized. And I watched her run her business. I watched how she interacted with people. I watched how she, I don't even know creepily if she knows like how much I learned about those things from her, like while I was waiting, because I waited a lot, but like <laughs> because she was so busy. Yeah. But I I would see 
how she ran things and what was important to her. And she was very good at making sure, you know, not just making sure that the thing that was right in front of her was going well, but the things that were 10, 12 days, days down the line that they were buttoned up to. And she could see what what could happen and she would arrange, you know, for it to go in the way that she needed it to go. She was designing a dress or, or jewelry or whatever she was doing. So she was a huge mentor for me. It is interesting what you're saying because I I think that's a reminder to all of us that you never know who is paying attention and right. who is learning by osmosis what to do and in some cases in my past what not to do. Yeah, and you know Andrea she then when I when I went to start the line then actively mentored me. Let's get into that. Yeah. So after 12 years, 15? Yeah. 12, 12 years, 12, 15 years if you include the school. Okay. Well. So after having really put in your time, having worked with costume, having worked with fine, having worked with a couple of different companies, having worked with brands, having worked with people, having worked with people who are brands, you decided it was time to revisit that initial studio that you were planning on doing and having your own line back in the day, all of these years later, what was the impetus for saying now is the time and this is what I'm going to do and how you came to start The Last Line? So I would always say throughout my career, like, oh, you know, I I, want to do my own line, but I'm not ready. I knew too much. Mm. I saw too much. I saw businesses fail I saw them succeed and then fail. I saw businesses succeed, but they were massive and I felt so small. You know, I saw factories turn upside down. I saw consignment ruin business. I saw so much. And I was basically like, I'm not entering from any of these angles. This is not worth it for me. I just loved making jewelry. And so I felt fulfilled making jewelry for a lot of other people. You didn't care if there was a store that had your name on it. Right. I like... thought I would I, initially. Mm-hmm. But then once I was designing for everyone, I realized that I just liked the creativity yeah. and the process is the reward, not and the acknowledgement exactly. necessarily. And the manufacturing. And I loved the technical part of it. I even like working with the factories. I even like negotiating with them. You know, and I loved this this whole world and I didn't want to give it up. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't figure out a way to enter it where I didn't have to give it up. And so in the middle of all of this happening, I remet my husband who we went to elementary school together and then I we remet. And so at this time I had left my second licensing job and I started a consulting business that I did from my home and I kept a lot of my clients and I still worked with the licensing company but I just did it on my own. Um why did you decide to do that? So I've always had like rocky bits in my life, I feel like. And I was designing so much and I really liked it, but my personal life, I was less than thrilled. And so I stopped working, took some time off. And, you know, when I was stopped working, I I made some mistakes. I wasn't very responsive. I kind of like said, you know, screw you to the job a little bit. I was not like the ideal human. And you were having a moment. I was having a moment. And Nicole was there for that moment. And when I came out of that moment, 
I wanted to make jewelry again. I wanted to work again, but that was going to be difficult. And luckily, it's not just Nicole. It was Andrea and Rachel and even the company that I had worked for before who all decided to, like, give me a second chance. So you hadn't burned all your bridges? No, but, like, nearly. I had to work really hard to prove that I, you know, was— Deserved that chance. Deserved the chance. And so that made me work even harder. And so I decided to do it, you know, from my my home, and I worked for all the brands that I worked for before and then some. And I built a bigger business— than I ever had when I was working for somebody. In a freelance capacity. Yes. That's really cool. Really cool. And in the consulting business, I was this little like designer fly on the wall in all these big business situations. And I learned, not accidentally, but without knowing that that's like why I was sucking that information in, I learned how to build a jewelry business. And what not to do. Exactly. And through this, I worked with tons of factories all over the world. I knew the best manufacturers. I knew... You knew everything. Everything. And Teddy, who is my business partner now and my husband, would always say, you know, you know this, you know that. Why don't you do that? And I said for years, I said, why doesn't somebody make a cool, middle-of-the-road, fine jewelry company. Why don't these mall jewelry brands make cool jewelry? Yeah. Why doesn't someone do that? And he finally looked at me, and he was like, why don't you do it? (laughs) (laughs) Had you thought about it at that point? We had starting to talk about it. And, you know, I asked every client who I ever had, the first question I said was, what do you love about fine jewelry that you just can't find? What are you looking for in jewelry that doesn't exist for you? Where is the missing piece for you? And I had a folder called Shelly's Folder that were things that didn't apply to the collections that I was working on. So for example, if you know I was talking to a client and they were gonna do a character-driven jewelry line, and they're like, but you know, What else is so annoying is that my ears were pierced when I was younger and my piercings are stretched out and earrings never fit me right. And I was like, they don't fit me right either. And so I would kind of be like, earrings that fit right, earrings that need to be in multiple sizes for different types of ears. And I had this big folder at this time that I was one day going to do something with. And it all revolved around classic fine jewelry that needed to be tweaked. And so the big mall brands that have tennis bracelets and huggies and heart pendants and, you know, diamond earrings and ear cuffs, all, everything, it it never fit right. And there was no reason for it. There was no financial reason why things weren't addressed from like a design first standpoint. It just didn't make any sense. They were just focusing only on getting it for as cheap as possible and just sort of overlooked a lot of concerns that many women have in that, like, all of our bodies are different. We wear jewelry differently. You know, we like different colors, and there were no options. And so Teddy 
and I were like, well, we should do the line. You know, we should make that brand. And so we set out to make a cool, well-designed, affordable, classic fine jewelry company. So it's direct-to-consumer. Yes. Which I think is brilliant, but that's also got to be scary. What made you decide to go that route? So once we decided what type of a line we Mm -hmm. were going to do, then we had to figure out how we were going to bring it to people. And I've seen retail fine jewelry destroy some of my favorite collections I've ever worked on. And it was from overorders on consignment that they were bullied into placing because if they didn't place that order, then they wouldn't be carried in that store. I've seen big retailers order specific designs that the designer didn't want to do or the creative director didn't like and essentially ruin the brand. And so, Because for people who don't know, yeah. a retailer could say, look at the full assortment and say, I only want these six pieces and I want you to make something custom for me yes. that you don't even believe in, but that I think I can sell. And then half the time that's on consignment, which yep. means that the the retailer will send it back to you if it doesn't sell. Exactly. So then this lame necklace that they forced you to make that you didn't even want to make goes to the store, no one buys it, and then they send it back to you. So now you're stuck with this inventory of something you didn't even want in the first place because you didn't think it could sell and it wasn't part of your vision. 100%. It was just... Because they I, held all the power. Yeah. And exactly. And you were... And, and at that time, brands weren't unless they were huge jewelry brands, they weren't marketing their brands individually. They were, that was part of the weight that the big retailers were throwing around was that we're going to put you in here and we're going to expose you to the world and we're going to put marketing dollars behind you and this is how you're going to be seen. So you were in this like very submissive role with these retailers that had these terms that could destroy you. Mm -hmm. And so I said no. (laughs) That doesn't seem sexy to me either, I'll admit. (laughs) Um, So let's talk about that initial assortment. What was the initial assortment? What was sort of talk about? Let's let's talk about launch. Okay. So we ended up designing rings, bracelets, earrings, and necklaces and anklets in our first, our personal first collection, right? So we had it all on the table. It was all sampled. For the first year, we sat on an inventory of jewelry for all of those. This was where I sort of messed up. Luckily, the business did well, so we went, we made it through. But we held, we tied up a ton of our financial resources in producing a collection that we didn't essentially fully release for an entire year. Oh, my God. (laughs) And so... Teddy and I both saw eye to eye in understanding the vision of the brand. And the vision of the brand, I feel like now, two and a half years in, is like realized. But it took two and a half years for us to explain what we were trying to launch. Many people, most people in the jewelry industry, they would be like, you're insane for making such a large collection. You need to order super deep on only a few styles, just like churn them out. And I'm like, I'm going to churn out a lot of styles and I'm going to order differently on all of them (laughs) because I believe that we need to create 
a collection that can be worn by everyone and service all different types of needs from somebody who's eight years old getting their first pair of earrings to 80 years old celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. So we decided to section off our first launch into three drops of earrings that were going to be dropped individually. And earrings are, you know, the bestseller of jewelry collections, just period. Interesting. Yeah. Because they fit everyone or are more likely to fit? So. Or you're more likely to change them? More likely to change them. You see them, they're on your face. They are typically less expensive, so they're easier to enter into. Mm -hmm. We decided, this was part of the brand, was that I wanted to make earrings that were sold individually. Mm -hmm. And so we, (laughs) despite the advice of many people, decided to sell each earring alone. So you could buy one earring because every single person that I knew at one point in their life had three piercings or more than two. Or by the way, like lost an earring or decided they wanted to do something asymmetrical. And so we launched all of these earrings and marketed them individually. And that was how we launched the brand with individually sold earrings. And there were probably over... 170 styles. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so was there something that you designed that was like, okay, I this is a standout. I know people are going to love it. And you were right? Or were you surprised by something that was like you thought it was great, but it ended up being a real sleeper hit? So yes to both. The, the Huggies, I have really like delicate ears, thin ears. My I pierced some of my piercings myself. Some are done at Claire. Some are done professionally. Like, I have really different types of piercings. My earrings never fit me right. I could never wear earrings that were hoops because they didn't hang right in my lobes, and I was like, super self-conscious about that. And so the Huggies and the hoops, I worked on drawing and sampling I mean, like, I'm lucky that the factory didn't just like dump me on these on these hoops. Well, you had long been standing with them. <laughs> yes, because I reworked and lowered that post half a millimeter, a quarter. Mil- I raised it back up. I lengthened the top part. I fine tuned the huggies in multiple sizes, and those were our initial some of our best sellers. Mm-hmm. And the reason is because. That was, I think, one of the pieces that people were really looking for was something that fit. A lot of companies address fit and functionality and technical materials and not it wasn't really addressed in jewelry. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was, you know, one of our points of difference was that we had this sizing component and fit component and sort of the, these are the last Huggies you'll ever need. So in two years, you've sold over 100,000 pieces of fine jewelry and over 500,000 diamonds. Two and a half. But yes. <laughs> two and a half. So that's kind of crazy if you think about it. How has your what you create changed as you've gotten to know your customer? So we realized that we have you know, four or five different customers who are typical uh, customer mold. And they all like different things in fine jewelry. And they're all able to be designed for individually. And, you know, I've also learned a lot about 
where people want to spend a lot and where people want to spend less. And Where do they want to spend a lot? People want to spend a lot on earrings with us and on necklaces and bracelets that are pieces that that can, you know, that can be kept forever, right? But they don't have to be boring. You know, one of our best-selling pieces is a heart bracelet, heart tennis bracelet with hearts and, and diamond tennis chain. She's a different kind of piece, you yeah. know? But it's it stands out, and it's something that people, I think, and from what I hear them saying, you know, this is, I'm going to wear this, and then I'm going to give it to my daughter, or this is going to be my staple piece, and I'm going to mix it with my push present that I already have or with my grandma's tennis bracelet. So I think one of the greatest things we've learned and one of the most exciting things is that people were looking for a brand that makes classic fine jewelry, but also one that makes classic fine jewelry with sort of a more wild twist yeah. and with color and with more personality and with personality. Yeah. Got and it. they're willing to spend on personality, which is really exciting for me because as a designer. It lines up. Yeah. And then you're not stuck in that thing where you're like making something you don't believe in. Exactly. You get to lean into what you already want to do from an artistic perspective. Exactly. Which must be very fulfilling. Very. Got it. Okay. So... We talk about team building mm-hmm. a lot on this podcast, and you've had to build a team for this company. What has that been like? What kind of boss are you? How do you like managing? So this is my biggest stretch. The business transition was the most difficult for me. I think that I'm really emotional, and I'm also like a little bit impatient. And as a designer working for myself, it was difficult for me I'm very excitable. So like so yesterday somebody sends us a store that that like we may rent and I'm like, all right, we're doing it. And I'm just like going to the next, down yeah. and Teddy's like, um, we should look into this. Yeah. Think about it. And then I'm like, no, and you'll get so disappointed. And then I have to tell myself, calm down. Yeah. You need to slow down. This is not, you know, the best thing that Andrea Lieberman said to me, I know that everyone says this, but, you know, it's a marathon and not a sprint. And I literally say that to myself probably four or five times a day. Totally. And I think that I'm still working on that. (laughs) Work in progress. (laughs) So one of the things we like to talk about on this podcast is mistakes because everyone makes them and no one ever wants to admit it. Um, But I think we can really learn a lot from hearing other people talking through them. So I'm hoping you can tell me about a mistake you've made in your career and what you've learned from it. So I have made a lot of mistakes in my career. Um, One of the things that my dad always told me was to, you know, obviously I feel like probably I'm like my dad who knew everything said like, don't burn a bridge. So I always tried to do right by everyone that I worked for, even when I was going through a bad time sort of in like the early middle part of my career and I bailed on everyone that I was working with and you know it it was a mistake and I think that I turned it into a positive and that it made me work even harder and I think that working that that doing right and working really I just worked really hard yeah and I worked really hard for everyone I worked for and then even when I made the mistake when I came back they had that light of what I had done first of working really hard. And there's no, I just like wanted it really badly. And then another, like now, I think a big mistake 
that I have learned from. And I actually, we we paid for this one. I always, for some reason, felt like things were going to slip away. And I felt like success was going to be like very fleeting. And I guess I didn't believe in myself enough, ultimately. We signed up to do something early in the business for more money than we should have. And it it almost ruined the business. And luckily, we sold jewelry and like got out of it. But I sort of leaned into something because I didn't feel strong enough to believe in myself being able to do what I wasn't necessarily trained in, but I knew. Right. And I didn't trust myself. And that was a that was a mistake. And that was a big mistake. And it all comes from I always wanna I always want to find somebody to help. I'll be like, I want to start a store. And I'm gonna need to find somebody to help me start a store. Teddy will be like, why? You what do, do what are you looking for? Like, what do you need someone to do? You know, and I'll be like, oh, well, like, I don't know how to do that. And he's like, but you do know how to do it. Like, you are saying exactly what you want to do. Why are you going to bring someone in to tell you how to do that? Like, bring someone in to build the store. Bring someone in to rent the store. Do all of those things. But, like, you don't need a GC for everything. Yeah. You know, it's hard to—it's scary to be— to, to, to say, this is what I want, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to put it all behind it. But it's actually even worse to be like, this is what I want to do, and I'm going to put it behind somebody else. Right. <laughs> so um, a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are in their first career, and they want to make a leap and either transition industries or start their own thing. What advice would you give someone who's doing their first life and is just a little stuck? The best piece of advice I would say to somebody who like wants to make a complete change if they need to get re-educated in something would be to learn how to do whatever you're doing without anybody's help. Like be able, not necessarily end goal of doing it all yourself, but if you want to be a jewelry designer, go learn how to make jewelry at the bench and understand and be able to be completely independent in the process. If you want to build cars, go learn how to do that. So learn all of the skills that it would take to do every single facet of the position and then apply those in the direction that you want it to go. Basically, like, be the general manager of the job that you want. I think that has served me so many times people in the business will be like, especially in this business where it's like, mainly a male, older male business, they'll be, oh, you don't know. And then when I can just drop the facts and the technical information while looking them dead in the eye, not only do you get respect and you get your prices are different, it changes everything. And it completely reframes the conversation and people are like, okay, being educated in whatever way that is. And I didn't graduate college. So like, I think there's a lot of paths to being educated. And part of my education was working for so long for other companies. And I think just get educated as much as you can and be able to be the most knowledgeable in whatever you're doing. And that will serve you beyond any degree or anything that you can get. 
Strongly agree, and that's great advice. My last question is my favorite question, which is if you could go back in time and speak with your younger self and give her some advice, what would you say? I think about this a lot because I think I had a lot of personal struggles early on and even in like my mid to late 20s. And I almost like wouldn't want to say anything to myself because I feel like very proud of where I've come from now. And I I think that I needed to go through all of that. But um, you're on this path when you get into school from kindergarten up until college. And like there are all these things that you're supposed to do. And I didn't understand until I was in my late 20s why. I I was going to college because I needed to go because I knew that's what you did next and that's what you're supposed to do. And I'd take the tests in school, but I I never could see the words like you'll be able to have the life that you want to have or, you know, you can create your own future. Those were like those were lost on me. I couldn't understand them until I had like a position in my life where like I almost didn't have a future. And then I was like, oh, I want to have a life. And I think that if some way I could explain to my younger self that I'm going to be okay no matter what and not to think about the path that is supposed to happen. I always thought there was like later on when like real life started, I would do this, that, and the other, (laughs) you know, and I think to explain that like your life is now and always. It's not after college, when you get the job, when you have the family, when you make the money, when you can take the vacation, that like your life is right now. And I think I was waiting for some moment to change and there like really isn't one. So if I could tell my young self that I was doing things for you, for your life that's now, you know, how does it feel for you right now? I love that. Oh my gosh, we're done! That was founder and creative director of The Last Line, Shelley Gibbs Sanders. For more inspiring interviews with women like Shelley, head on over to secondlifepod.com where we have so many more for you to peruse. If you liked today's show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us. We love seeing you spread the word on social and you can tag us in your posts. We are at Second Life Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We always want to know who you'd like to hear from on the show. So send in your request to hello at secondlifepod.com or you can DM us on Instagram. I'm at Hillary Kerr. The show is at Second Life Pod. Our DMs are always open. I'm Hillary Kerr and you've been listening to Second Life.